Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your abundant mercy. I pray that you be merciful even now to this finite and flawed preacher. Help me to clearly and faithfully share the life-giving truths that are found in your word and help me to do it for your glory and your glory alone. It's in your son's name I pray, amen. This morning we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. If you are in the uh, Pew Bible, I believe that's page 1014. By the way, while you're turning there, if you don't have a copy of God's Word for yourself, please take that Bible and take it with you. I think I speak on behalf of all the elders that we would love to go over our Bible budget. That would be a pretty good problem to have. So, all right, giving you enough time. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. When we moved to Florida just over five years ago now, I decided to take up fishing. I'd fished before as a kid, but I would never call myself a fisherman. But here we were in Florida. I knew my golf game was beyond hope, so you got to do something, so I decided I should at least be an adequate fisherman. So I did what you do. I went up to Bass Pro Shop, and I said, here's my money. Make me a good fisherman, and they were happy to sell me all sorts of things. That kind of started a pattern um, whenever I've kind of got an afternoon to myself where I'll go up to Bass Pro, and I'll go to the fishing section, and I'll pick the brains of the associates there to figure out how to get decent at fishing. One of those times, this was very early into my pretty unimpressive fishing career, I was talking to one of the associates. He was giving me tips on how to catch bigger fish. And in the conversation, I showed a photo of me with the largest fish I had caught so far. I was very proud of this photo. I'm holding the fish like this. I got a big grin on my face. The fish looks annoyed. He says, will you just release me? I got fish stuff to do. I was really, I was like, yeah, I made it. And the guy from Bass Pro looked at it for a second and says, you know, I got one more tip for you, and it's going to make you a better fisherman right now. It will make you catch bigger fish. I said, awesome, lay it on me. He said, next time you catch a fish, don't take a photo like this. Take a big step back so you're further and hold it way forward so it's closer And it's going to look really big. Some of you are laughing. I'm getting glares from some of you because I just gave away the fisherman's secrets. (laughs) You know what? It works. And the reason it works, there's an optical illusion known as forced perspective. Things that are right in front of you look inaccurately huge. And things that are just a little further back 
look inaccurately small. Even if you aren't a fisherman, you've almost certainly seen other examples of forced perspective. What would a trip to Pisa, Italy be if the tourist didn't take the photo where they're way up in the foreground and the leaning tower is way in the background and it looks small and they look big and everyone at home can see that they're holding up the tower? Pretty cool. It works because when you're up close, it looks big, and when you're back there, it looks small. Another example, this one is just for kids. Sorry, parents. This is my favorite example of forced perspective. What you do is you take your thumb and your pointer finger like this, bring it close up to your face, line up, sorry, Justin, line up someone's head between, and like a grape. (laughs) Just squished it. Good way to annoy siblings on long car rides. Good way to make sure that your illustration is going to get discussed in sermon review next week. (laughs) All three of these examples, the the bigger-than-reality fish, the tourists saving the city of Pisa, squishing the heads of friends and loved ones, they all work on the same principle. When something is right in front of you, it looks much bigger than it actually is, and when something is off in the distance, it looks smaller than it actually is. And this principle is not just true of optical illusions. It's true of our lives. The things that are right in front of us, that we're dealing with right now, look massive. And the things that are just over the horizon sometimes are dwarfed by what's right in front of us. It is especially true when the thing that we're dealing with in the present moment are trials and troubles. Maybe that's where you find yourself this morning, right at this moment. Maybe you're trying to hold it all together. Sure, you agree with everything that we just sang. You sang with gusto when we've been there 10,000 years. But it's really hard to think about being there 10,000 years in light of the notice you just got from the bank, the diagnosis you got from the doctor, the loved one you're still grieving, the bad news that you heard from a friend, the good news that didn't come. It can be really hard to keep perspective. And I want to be really clear as we get into this text. This is not a passage that says those things aren't a big deal. I'm not minimizing those things. The things that are pressing down on you this morning are nothing to make light of. In fact, before we get into the text, I just want to remind you, the Lord cares about the little things. The Lord cares about your present struggles. He sees you. He has not forgotten you. So I'm certainly not trying to minimize the very real problems that come with living in a broken and sin-filled world. But at the same time, I want to encourage you to consider the enormity of the eternal. We have to keep things in proper perspective. We have to keep things in their proper proportion. And that brings us to this morning's text. So some of you may recall... Uh, the last time I had the opportunity to preach, in 1 Peter 1 through 2, Peter referred to his audience as elect exiles. And I love, I love that title. These are Christians who found themselves, because of their faith, metaphorically homeless. They were hated by everyone around them. They were strangers in a strange land. They were outcasts. They were marginalized. And it's safe to say that they were dealing with some very real, very serious problems that were right in front of their face. And Peter was pastorally concerned about this. He was concerned that with all these trials pressing in from every side, that these Christians risked losing sight of this eternal hope they had and how huge it is. He wanted to help them regain their perspective. He doesn't do this, again, by downplaying their present problems. Instead, he wants to help them understand that the very real issues that they are dealing with are dwarfed by the infinite of the gospel. In this passage, Peter puts things in perspective. He begins, as we heard from the text, by praising God for his great mercy, and specifically the mercy that he showed in causing Christians to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And then... To help us understand how big that is, to help us get perspective, to help us measure things, Peter lists three blessings of the new birth. 
If you'd like to structure your notes, that would be a good title. Three Blessings of the New Birth. And I'll just let you know where I'm going right now so you can get your note page all set up if you're someone like me who has to do that sort of stuff. The first blessing of the new birth is guaranteed inheritance. The second blessing of the new birth is genuine faith. And the third is great privilege. Before I get into the first one, guaranteed inheritance, again, if you're anything like me, you won't be listening for the first two minutes because you're trying to figure out how to spell guaranteed. So it is G-U-A-R-A-N-T-E-E-D. I know that because I typo that constantly this week. The first blessing that Peter reminds us of is a guaranteed inheritance. Now, in order for us to really appreciate what Peter is saying in this passage, we have to understand inheritance in the way that it was understood back then. We can't just import how we understand inheritance today in this passage. If you do that, you are going to miss what Peter is saying here. Modern times, we tend to think of inheritance maybe not exclusively, but primarily as the financial and the sentimental. If an heir is attending the reading of a will, chances are they have two questions. What is the financial value of my share of the estate? And what family heirlooms and other gifts of sentimental value am I now going to be entrusted with? If that's the I'm not judging those things, but if that's the definition of inheritance that you're bringing into this text, you're going to miss what Peter's saying. In both the Greek and Jewish world at the time, inheritance almost exclusively referred to ancestral land, to the family's land, to a physical place. The Greek understanding of inheritance was your share of the family property. Same for Jews. We can't miss that throughout the Old Testament, the verb that we translate as inherit is used not to refer to possessions or monetary wealth. It almost always refers to land, and it almost always refers to family land. That's all well and good, but if you stop there, you're still going to miss what Peter's saying. Because we may say, well, Dave, estates often include real estate. You're missing it still. I fact-checked this with one of our elders who knows a thing or two about wills, states, and trusts. When someone inherits real estate in our modern culture, almost always they want to convert it to cash and sell it or rent it. It is quite rare that when you inherit real estate in this day and age that the next step is to move into that real estate that you just inherited, and that is now your primary dwelling place. That's not really a thing that happens. That's not how it worked in the ancient Near East. Ancestral land was a huge deal. Unless there was some really exceptional circumstance, it would have been fairly odd to sell inherited property. It would have been fairly odd not to physically abide in that property, literally dwell in that place. Not only that, but in both Greek and Hebrew culture, inheriting land was the primary way that you increased your social status. Land was intrinsically tied to inclusion and participation in a family and the rights, benefits, and blessings thereof. We don't have a great metaphor for that today. The closest we probably have, if you think about titles in Europe, right? There's, you know, uh, Duke of wherever or Earl of such and such. Those titles are passed from one generation to the next. And it's not just the title. It's the rights and privilege and status that comes with that title. In the same way in the ancient Near East, one's share of the family property came with two things a place to physically live among the family and the blessings that were associated with being part of that family. Okay, history lesson over. The point I'm making is that we have to understand how inheritance would have been understood by Peter's audience. Place to live among the family, status among the family. Think about who Peter was writing to. Elect exiles, outcasts, the metaphorically homeless, the people with no status. Because of Christ. 
Peter reminds them that even though they are exiles, even though we are exiles in the present, there's an eternal dwelling place along with the rights, status, privileges that come with being sons and daughters of the king of all creation that's waiting for us as an inheritance. But Peter doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, Christian, this inheritance is possible. He assures them that the inheritance is guaranteed. Daydream with me for a moment. You get a letter in the mail, unexpectedly, and it says, this is to let you know that your fourth cousin, twice removed, has just added you to his will. And when he eventually passes away, you stand to inherit stocks that are currently worth $1 million. You'd be pretty stoked. It's better than the mail that I get. But as time went on, especially if you were depending on that inheritance, there's two worries that might start creeping into your head. The first, what if something happens to the value of that inheritance? What if the stock tanks? What if inflation runs wild? Just because this inheritance is worth a million dollars today is no guarantee that it's going to be worth anything tomorrow. The ancient Near, Near Eastern era would have similar concerns. They'd be, because they're thinking about land, they'd be perhaps less worried about inflation and more worried about invasion and infestation. But they'd have that same concern. And so when Peter says, hey, you've got this eternal inheritance, maybe they would say, okay, but what if something happens to it? Well, Peter in verse 4 offers this reassurance. He says, this inheritance, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's kept in heaven for you. The point being, this inheritance is safe from threat. Each of these adjectives used, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, they point to the safety of the inheritance. Nothing is going to happen to it. It will not be damaged. It will not diminish. Not only that, it's in a secure location. It's not deposited at Silicon Valley Bank. It's not stuffed under a mattress somewhere. It's kept in heaven for you. The point is clear. If you're in Christ, you don't have to worry about something happening to your inheritance. The safety is guaranteed. Okay, back to our daydream. I mentioned there's two things you might be worried about. Okay, Dave, that's fine. I'm not worried about the value of the inheritance. But you might be worried about something that would change your status as an heir. You might get cut out of the will. Who cares if the estate is worth a million dollars if you don't know for sure that when the will is read that your name's on the list? Peter addresses this concern as well. Look at verse 5. I'm going to caution you. It's very easy in this passage, and especially at this point, to read what you think is there and not what's actually there. Verse 5 says that something is being guarded by God's power through faith. But that something is not the inheritance. Look at the first word. Who? Who? You. You, Christian, are what is being guarded by God's power. Guarded against what? Well, we know from 1 Peter, the rest of the book, it's not saying you're going to be guarded against trials. It's not saying if you're in Christ, nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. That's not what's being guarded against. In fact, the text makes very clear, expect those things. They're coming. Now, what Peter is saying here is that God's power is guarding the faith of believers amidst the trials. Another way, by his power, our faith will persevere. We know from scriptures such as Hebrews 3, for example, that the greatest threat, the greatest possibility of losing this inheritance is unbelief. If we lose our faith, we lose the inheritance. So, if God's power is guarding the inheritance and that inheritance is by faith, then God's power is guarding the faith. Think about this. Think about passages like Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. We are born again. Our faith 
is a gift of God. And that faith is not this carefully measured one-time thing. Okay, I gave you what you need to get in, and now it's up to you. This faith is an ongoing thing, and it was initiated, and it will be sustained by God's own power until we obtain this promised inheritance. So this first blessing of the new birth that Peter shares with us helps us gain proper perspective. It invites us to glance up from the troubles that are pressing down on us, look to the horizon, and consider what awaits us in eternity, what's guaranteed. Even in the midst of the most harrowing trials, you can have confidence if you're in Christ that your eternal dwelling place is abiding with the Lord Almighty and you have eternal status as an adopted son or daughter of the Lord. And this promised inheritance is protected by God's own power and his power does not fail. If you find yourself this morning feeling like your present troubles are insurmountable. You need to cling to this truth. You need to hang on for dear life. You need to set your hope in this inheritance because you're not going to find the hope in this world. And by the way, even if that's not where you are this morning, hide this passage in your heart because you're going to need it one day. When present trials press in on you, remind yourself of the future glories that await you. Don't let your sense of perspective get thrown off. Meditate on the depth and breadth and width and richness of the gospel. Reflect on the fact that you can trust in the same God who brought you to faith to sustain your faith even in the face of trials if you're in Christ. Brings me to the second blessing of the new birth listed here. That is genuine faith. Mentioned earlier, Peter never says that trials won't come. Verses 6 and 7, he helps us understand that the various trials that we face, that we endure, attest to the genuineness of our faith. Peter acknowledges in verse 6, there may be times when Christians face various trials. The, The Greek word here for various It's an extremely broad word, and I say that not just to geek out on the language, but to tell you the the language here conveys that Peter's not talking about one specific type of trial. He's not even talking about one specific category of trial. He's talking about any sort of trial. Yes, the sorts of trials that they were experiencing in the first century ancient Near East, but also the trials that you are dealing with today. This is a universal and timeless truth. Peter also acknowledges, don't miss this, that Christians can be grieved by trials. He says that without judgment. Being grieved by various trials does not mean that your faith is fake. There are times where you are going to face trials, it says here in the text, and it also says in the text There are times when those trials will grieve you. But interestingly enough, Peter says these trials and the accompanying grief are also things we can rejoice in. Say, what in the world? Look, Peter is not hand-waving your problems away. He's not telling you to turn your frown upside down. He's telling us that our continued faithfulness to God in light of Trials, especially in light of trials, proves to ourselves and to others that our faith is the real deal. Our claim as an heir is legitimate. It's how we validate our faith. Peter uses the imagery of gold to make this point. I'm no metal, metallurg, I can't even say the word. I'm no metal science guy. Um, Some of you know what that is. Uh, But I did do a little bit of research this week. One of the things that was fascinating is even though science has advanced, the process that Peter is talking about here, testing the genuineness of gold through fire, still in the year 2023, for all of our advances, remains the most accurate way of proving the purity 
of gold. For example, in 2020, there was an Australian mining company, and they found gold in one of their mines, and reportedly they told everybody that this gold was exceptionally pure, more so than most gold findings. As you might imagine, investors were pretty excited by that news, but they also didn't just take it on face value. That claim had to be proven. It's proven in this process known as gold fire assay. And in that process, as I understand it, now look, I'm not even sure if I'm saying the word right, but this is my understanding of how it works, is that there's a special crucible and samples of the gold are put in and it's hit with the flame, it's put under intense heat, and all that isn't gold, it's called dross, is burnt up. And what's left is the genuine precious metals. And it allows the claimed purity, the claimed genuineness of the gold to be confirmed or debunked. Peter uses this process of testing gold as a metaphor for the trials that you and I are going to face as Christians. Just as the genuineness of gold is proven in the fiery crucible, the genuineness of our faith is proven in the crucible of these worldly trials. It's really quite amazing. When Peter tells us we can rejoice in our trials, like that's, what a thing to say. How can he say that? He says right here, even though our trials are painful and unpleasant, they prove that our faith is genuine. And genuine faith, real faith, is even more valuable than gold. We don't have to wonder if our faith is, faith is the real deal. There are religions, that isn't the case. There are religions that like you kind of have to wait and see. Hopefully, you did the right number of good things and not too many bad things. But you have no way of knowing. There is no guarantee. There's no, there's no test. It says here in the text, we don't have to wonder. Genuine faith remains in the face of trouble. And that proves that that faith is genuine and is being guarded by God's own power. I think it's really important to understand and internalize. Um, as, a, as an elder here at this church, um, it's not uncommon um, to shepherd someone who is struggling with the question... How do I know if I'm saved? They may say, sure, I understand that Scripture says that Christ won't lose any that the Father has given to him, but how do I know if I'm one of the ones that have been given to Christ? How do I know I'm not fooling myself and everyone around me? Maybe it's something you've struggled with yourself. Understand, it's a legitimate question. By the way, if you ever are struggling with that question, like that's what the elders are here for. That's what the pastors are here for. Don't be embarrassed by that question. We want to shepherd you through that. We understand how unsettling those doubts can be, and we want to point you to God's word to help you understand those questions. And one of the instances in God's word that addresses that exact question is right here. This passage, Peter gives a way of knowing if your faith is genuine. Genuine faith remains intact under trials. I want to be very clear here what the passage is not saying. It is not saying that if you've ever had a moment of doubt that your faith is phony. That is not what it's saying. It's not saying if you've ever been so overwhelmed by grief and hurt and pain that you even for just one moment said, God, where are you? This is not saying that if that's you, that your faith isn't real. Don't take my word for it. Spend some time in the Psalms. Here's just one example, Psalm 13. David, beloved by God, man after God's own heart, friend of God, cries out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart every day? If you've ever asked that type of question to God amidst your trials... This passage is not saying that your faith isn't genuine. We're allowed to grieve. But this passage reminds you to grieve as someone with a living hope. Through the power of God, trust that your faith will make it through the trial intact. I don't want to minimize whatever troubles you might be dealing with this morning, but I would invite you to reflect on trials you've endured in the past. 
Highly unlikely that whatever trial you're dealing with today is the first time you've ever faced a trial. Highly unlikely that whatever you're dealing with today is the first time something is so close to you that it seems larger than life. Think back at those trials you endured in the past. You made it through the other side, maybe a little banged up and bruised, but God guarded your faith. It's worth rejoicing over. It's worth remembering during your present trials. If you are indeed in Christ, he will hold you fast. And through those trials, you don't have to wonder. You can prove the genuineness of your faith. All right. Starting in verse 8 then, Peter lists the third blessing of the new birth. This is the blessing of great privilege. My family's not here today because there's a cold being passed around. I'm healthy. I tend to get it at the tail end when everyone's sympathy is exhausted. Um, but because of that, I can brag about my wife and not embarrass her too much, even though I'm, they may be watching on the live stream. For those who know my wife, she's exceptionally gifted in hospitality. The Lord has blessed her with that gift. Everything about our house has been like intentionally, I don't even get it, but it's been intentionally designed and engineered and manicured to make people feel welcome and at home. And one of those things, one of those little details of hospitality is on our table. There's this box of cards called table talk cards, and they're they're conversation starters. You've probably seen things like these before. Ways to break the ice, ways to make strangers feel like friends, ways to get to know someone, ways where when there's the awkward lull in the conversation that you can kind of like take the awkwardness out of the room. One of those cards, I'll make sure you get the wording right, in the deck asks the question, if you could time travel to any point in history, where would you go? Normally when we ask that question, and it's Christians who are at the table, the answer is, at some point in Christ's earthly ministry. I want to hear the Sermon on the Mount. I want to see the empty tomb and the ascension. I want to eat the loaves and the fish. In fact, that, that answer is given so often that when we pull that card, it's like, yeah, 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 you need a second answer. Like, you need something else. Um, we've heard that one. And so, oftentimes, what will be referenced is some other biblical story. Oh, man, it would be so, my faith would be so strong. I'd be so blessed if I had the opportunity to walk through the parted Red Sea. Whew. Man, if I saw David slay Goliath, Wow, that would be something. There's a sense in which sometimes it feels like as Christians, we look to the saints of the past with some degree of envy. Like we're late to the party. Scripture is closed, and I checked. My name's not in it, and neither is yours. You're not a main character, you're not supporting cast, you're not even a background extra in any of the great tales that we teach our kids in Sunday school of God's acts through history. Like you're, you're not in the ark, you didn't cross the Red Sea. There's a sense where we're like, oh man, I missed out on all the good stuff. I'm like a second class believer. These guys and gals, man, whew, I envy them. It's probably safe to say that Peter's audience felt the same way, probably even more so. Remember, this is the Apostle Peter writing. So just the way that time works, these are people who, probably a good number of them, lived during the time of Christ's earthly ministry. In fact, there's a good chance they lived close enough that there may be like fear of missing out. It was like, man, if only I could have gotten myself over there, I could have seen these things firsthand. I could have seen the ministry of Christ with my own eyes And then my faith would really be something special. Unexpectedly, Peter makes a complete opposite point here. He talks about what an amazing privilege it is, how wondrous it is to be us, to be his audience and every believer after that. And he explains his privilege via three comparisons. First one is 
a bit unexpected. I'll tell you this now. I'll get into it. You might go, wow, that's pretty unexpected on this one. Um, this is one of the points that like, I consulted a bunch of really trusted conservative evangelical scholars, and I'm not in left field, so stay with me here. In verse 7 through 9, Peter explains that it's especially praiseworthy that his original audience, and us too, love Christ and believe in him even though we've not seen him. Say, David, what was shocking about what you just said? Peter explained those things. Peter did see Christ in his earthly ministry. He did know Christ. He knew him well. He witnessed miracles firsthand. He heard the teaching firsthand. You would think that Peter would be asserting his privilege. You think he'd be saying, y'all need to listen to me because I was there and I saw it and therefore, like, I'm the reference point. I'm the one who should be praised. He doesn't. He's saying it's praiseworthy that we have believed despite not seeing with our own eyes. It's actually something that comes up quite a bit in Peter's writing. For example, 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter starts by saying that he and the rest of the apostles were eyewitnesses to Christ's majesty. He says he heard with his own ear the Father saying out loud, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. But then, Peter goes on to say that the hope of Christians after the resurrection is more fully confirmed than even audibly hearing the voice of God. Wow! Those of us who live on the other side of Christ's death burial, and resurrection, and believe in Christ based on this revelation and not seeing it with our own eyes, that's actually a privilege that Peter's talking about here. See the next comparison verse 10. We see a comparison to the Old Testament prophets. Throughout all of Peter's writing, he often explores this idea that the Old Testament speaks of Christ and those who belong to him. See, here even in this passage, right, as we understand the passage, um, sure, the Old Testament prophets uh, predicted things that came to pass in their own day, but it also says here that it was revealed to them that the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories were things that would not be revealed in their own day. Don't miss this. The Old Testament saints that we love to read about lived during a time when the Messiah had not yet been revealed. The prophets pointed forward to the person and work of Christ, and they searched and they searched and they longed to see the day that the Messiah would come. But it says here in the text, it was revealed to them that they were serving later generations and not their own. This is a a weighty point. Everybody who has ever read or heard Peter's letter from the original time that it was received to you right now today live in a time when the promised Messiah that the Old Testament prophets were searching for has been revealed. One commentator put it this way. The prophets of the Old Testament longed to see the time of the Christians in the first century Asia Minor, Peter's audience. The prophets of the Old Testament longed for the time of Christians in the 21st century, us. It's not that those of us who are living after Christ's earthly ministry missed the boat, missed out. It's the other way around. Peter makes this point again, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 19. We live in a time when the words of the prophet are more fully confirmed. We are the envy of the Old Testament prophets and saints and not the other way around. This last one, Peter also compares us to angels to help us understand our great privilege. Hold on your seat. This one, um, I'll confess to you, I have read this passage 
many times in my life. Um, and until I was really digging in to prepare for this sermon, I got the phrase, you know, the, the things that angels want, uh, long to look at. I got that wrong. I misunderstood what it was saying. Maybe you have too, or maybe you're smarter than me and you got it. At first glance, when you read that, it might appear that what Peter is saying is that God's plan of salvation is somehow hidden from the angels. They can't see it. There's a back room, and on the door there's a sign that says, no angels allowed, and that's where all of the files about salvation are kept. And they just really want to get in there and rifle through it. That's not the case. When you look to Scripture, angels had a front row seat to the unfolding of God's redemptive plan. They were there when he revealed his plan to the prophets, and they were there when that plan was enacted, and in fact, they played some small parts in enacting that plan. Remember, it was an angel who announced the incarnation of Christ to Mary. Angels ministered to Christ when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Angels strengthened Christ as he prayed on the Mount of Olives, knowing that he was about to be betrayed. Angels proclaimed the resurrection at the empty tomb. Angels were present at Christ's ascension into heaven. Angels even now rejoice every time a sinner repents. It's all in scripture. So the point is not that God's redemptive plan is hidden from the angels as if they can't see it. They've seen it. In some sense, they've seen it longer and more clearly and more firsthand than we ever could. But here's something that may just break you. It broke me when through the Holy Spirit, the light went on on what exactly it was that Peter was implying here. The angels have seen God's redemptive plan, but they will never experience it for themselves. We see in Scripture that fallen angels, any angel who has sinned, cannot be forgiven. Says so, first Peter three, nineteen through twenty, Jude six. Angels are unable to know what it's like from their own experience to benefit from God's plan of salvation. It's funny, I, I didn't ask Mark to uh, to do the thing that he did with Amazing Grace, but it'll preach. Think about it. I felt it. When we were singing that first verse and we were just listening to someone else sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, I felt amongst the congregation, like, oh man, I want to sing that. Angels who, like, their greatest joy is worshiping the Lord, bringing glory and honor to the Lord, can never sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. They can sing that saved a wretch like them. What a privilege we have. I especially want to speak just for a moment for those of you who may be here this morning who don't know Christ, who don't trust in Christ. You right now, this morning in this place, have a privilege that even the angels are envious of. See, God created the world and everything in it, and it was good, and he created man and woman and you and me, and it was very good, and then we messed it all up through sin. We rebelled, every one of us, you and me. We rebelled against God's very good rule, decided we'd rather do what's right in our own eyes. This rebellion is called sin. And a single sin rightfully deserves eternal damnation. And everyone, includes me, and includes you, has sinned and deserves 
God's righteous wrath. But God, in his great mercy, sent Jesus Christ to live the perfect life that you and me could not and would not live, and then to suffer and die on the cross. He was the perfect Messiah who bore the wrath meant for sinners. You and I are sinners. Died the death that sinners deserve. You and I are sinners. But then on the third day, he rose again and he conquered the power of sin and death. Here's the thing. The angels saw all that. They experienced that. They were there. But this next part is the thing that the angels long to experience and you right now today can experience. If you repent, turn from your sin, turn towards Christ, trust him as Lord, the righteousness of Christ will be counted as your righteousness. You'll be reconciled to God, to use the metaphor we've been using. You'll be added to the will. The inheritance that we've been discussing, it will be yours. You will dwell eternally with God in his presence. You will have the status of a son or daughter of the king. This amazing privilege, this opportunity that not even angels can experience like, it can be yours. Now, for those who are in Christ, we're incredibly privileged to be living in a time where God's redemptive plan has been revealed to us, his word, and we have the opportunity to experience his salvation. Uh, Growing up, my parents, uh, from time to time, not often, but from time to time, would say, you kids don't know how good you've got it. I'll never say that to my kids. <laughs> I've heard those. Sad to say, I've heard those words slip out of my mouth. In fact, they did just the other day. My daughter was working on a math problem, an equation, and she was having a hard time figuring out the steps. Ugh. Let me step in and show you how it's done. Oops. What is this? I'm over my head. And then I remembered hearing about a feature that my phone had. Where are my Android people at? All right. If you're an Android person, like you've spent the majority of your life hearing from Apple people about how wonderful iPhones are, and we just smile and we're polite. Well, I'm going to stick up for those of us stuck in the green text for a second. There's a feature on newer Android phones where if you take a picture of a math problem, a thing will pop up saying, hey, that looks like a math problem. You want me to show you how to solve it? I probably should have told, like, the students to (laughs) close their ears on the, sorry. (laughs) My bad. It was cool. I mean, we took the band, showed all of the steps, and we were able to walk through it, and we saw at what point in the process that we were making a mistake, and it helped us get to the right answer. It was pretty cool, and of course, I just could not help myself of boring my kids with tales that my day, we did math with a number two pencil and an abacus in the snow, uphill both ways. (laughs) You kids don't know how good you've got it. That's the same argument, albeit much less obnoxiously, that Peter's making here. Yes, our present problems are real. They are serious. They are painful. But, like, let's not lose sight of the amazing privilege that we possess. Just keep it in perspective. We live in a time that the Old Testament prophets longed to see. We don't have to wonder who the Messiah is. We don't have to wonder and search and try to figure out exactly how the plan of redemption would be accomplished. We don't have to wonder how the benefits of that redemption can be ours. We have a salvation that even the angels long to experience firsthand. And we have the opportunity to love and trust Christ by faith and not sight, which not even the Apostle Peter could say. I get it can be really hard to keep perspective. You're dealing with pain or disappointment or hurt, loss, trials, tribulation, problems. These things can seem larger than life. 
And when the trials come, the tears come, you can lose sight, you can lose your sense of proportion of all the blessings that if you're in Christ, you have through Christ. Reminded of a song, don't worry, I won't sing. The song is from the 1954 film, White Christmas. I know, it's not even Easter. (laughs) This song actually doesn't mention Christmas at all. The song is called, Count Your Blessings Instead of Sheep. If you've never heard the song before, to give you a sense of the subject matter, let me read the first verse. When I'm worried and I can't sleep, I count my blessings instead of sheep, and I fall asleep counting my blessing. The, the saying, count your blessings, it predates the song, certainly, but this song is credited with popularizing the saying, right? It appeared in one of the most popular movies of all time, and this is when that phrase, count your blessing, kind of made it into the mainstream. What I thought was really interesting is the story behind the song. Writer Irving Berlin sent the lyrics to the movie studio, and with it he enclosed a letter explaining the story behind the song. I'll read an excerpt. As I say in the lyrics some time ago, after the worst kind of sleepless night, my doctor came to see me. And after a whole lot of complaining about my problems, my doctor stopped me and said, hey, you ever try counting your blessings instead? We can certainly question the doctor's bedside manner. Like, I don't recommend that. But there is some truth to what he's saying here. A surefire prescription for putting our present problems in the proper perspective is to remind ourselves of how massively we've been blessed. And I'm not talking about the blessings of health and wealth and all that stuff. I'm talking about the blessings that are ours if we're in Christ through the completed work of Christ. Because of God's great mercy, he has caused, if you're in Christ, you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And because of that new birth, if you're in Christ, you've been blessed this morning with a guaranteed inheritance, genuine faith, and great privilege. Those are three blessings you can count. In light of those blessings, what do we do? How do we respond? This is a sermon after all, so of course I've got an alliterated list of application points. You get your money back if I didn't. Receive, remember, rejoice. These are three things to do in light of the truths of this text. Receive the blessings. Again, some of you this morning have not experienced these blessings, so you've not experienced the new birth. When I just said, if you're in Christ, you have this. If you're in Christ, you have that. You said, not me. I don't have any of those things. If you're here this morning, you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. We'd love, we'd long to see you know this hope. To have the hope of these blessings that we've talked about today. I'd love to talk to you. And the elders would love to talk to you. And the members of this church would love to talk to you. So we can share the hope that we have in Christ and we can explain how you too can experience these blessings. If you're in Christ, however, I want to offer two additional points of application. First, remember your blessings. For some here this morning, probably more than we'd think, the most pressing need of your soul is to regain perspective. This morning, you can't see the size of these promised blessings because you can't see past the present problems. I say this with sincere Christian love and not judgment. It would behoove you to remember the many blessings that you have through the gospel of Christ. I'm not saying to ignore your problems. I'm not minimizing your problems. I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm not saying... Uh, to, to make light of them, but I am saying be intentional and not accidental about meditating on the glory of the gospel. Meditating, yes, these problems right up in front of your face seem giant. Meditating on exactly how huge 
the eternal blessings that have been promised to you and are secured for you are. Rest your weary soul in the gospel of Christ. When you're walking through suffering or sorrow, disappointment, disillusionment. Remember these passages. Yes, it's okay to be grieved. But your pain will not be wasted. Even in the midst of grief, rather, you can rejoice. You can know that God will sustain your faith. You can know that on the other side of that trial, you can, with pride, like, think about um, a sport bike racer, a motorcycle racer, My guess is they probably look at the banged-up helmet that saved their life with an awful lot of pride, as banged-up as it may be. When you get on the other side of trials, know that that pain won't be wasted because it attests to the goodness of Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes on that inheritance. You want to know one of the best ways to keep perspective in the face of trials? I, I alluded to this earlier. When you're going through trials, spend time thinking about how your faith remained through past trials. Let me get really concrete for a second. Let's not be conceptual. Let's be concrete. If you are walking through a season right now marked with trials, yes, hold on to all those truths I've said. Rest in them. But do future you a favor. When you're going through trials, consider journaling your prayers, writing them down. As time progresses, go back. Write how the Lord responded to the things that you were pleading with him about. Write about how your faith was sustained even in the darkest of days. Just like the Israelites stacked rocks on the riverbank so that way from that point forward, they could look at that exact spot and be reminded of a time when things seemed really dark And it seemed like they wouldn't be persevered. And then God supernaturally sustained them. Stack some rocks. Start keeping a monument of the many ways that God has sustained your faith. Because that will serve as a balm in the future to your weary soul by reminding you and giving you strength and joy in your trials. Others here this morning. Yes. Maybe a less timely sermon. Maybe this isn't a season in life that you need to be reminded of how to view troubles. Maybe this is a season marked only by blessing and not thorns. I I don't mean this sarcastically. If that's the case, praise the Lord. It's great. I rejoice with you. And I ask that you respond by rejoicing. Even as we're about to do in just a moment. We're about to sing corporately. If you're in a season that the blessings seem really big and the problems seem really small, let that be expressed in your worship. Yes, doing so brings honor and glory to the Lord, and that's the primary reason why we worship together. But another reason why we worship together is to remind each other of the hope that we have in Christ. Your enthusiastic singing that comes not out of obligation, but from gratitude, my heart overwhelmed with joy in the blessings that you have in Christ, that type of singing may just be what one of your neighbors needs to hear to be reminded of all that they have in Christ, all they have in the gospel. So in our worship in just a moment, offer it up to God, but serve each other in this worship as well. Let's pray in light of these truths. Father, we praise you for your abundant mercy, especially the mercy that you've shown in the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you that through the new birth, you have given us immeasurable blessings. Help us to view our present trials in light of the abundant glories that you have promised us. Help us to put our hope 
in our eternal inheritance and not our worldly comforts. Help us to rejoice even and especially while we are grieving, knowing that every trial will attest to your power working in us, guarding our faith for your glory and our good. Thank you for the wonderful privilege that we have to have received the gospel of Jesus Christ, our only hope in life and death. And it's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen.